Well, East Coast girls are clearly digging the style they wear, and the Southern girls with the way they walk. They knock me out when I'm down there. They knock me out when I'm down there. The Midwest farmers daughters really make you feel alright. And the Northern girls are the chest. They are the ones who warm at night. I wish they all could be up in California. I wish they all could be California. I wish they all could be California. The West Coast girls are the sunshine. The girls are so pretty. I had to get French bikini on Hawaii Island. Dolls by the palm tree and sand. I've been around all this great big world. And I've seen all kinds of girls. So, um, what's this pro- this uh, project? Jesus Christ. What's this podcast called, Hugh? Uh, this podcast is uh, Project A+. Are you fucking crunching on toast? Apologies for the toast crunching sound effects. Mmm. Yeah, but at least it's like, it's like well-recorded toast crunching sound effects. So it's like ASMR or yeah, whatever it's yeah. called. Yeah, yeah. Well, some people dislike that noise. So... Um, there's our trademark New York siren. Yeah, that's how you can. That's a our, our um, part of the fabric of our podcast. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <coughs> uh, what do we do on this podcast? Um, Besides, have the ambient noise nightmares. Oh my god, so unprofessional. It's embarrassing. This really. is the last, the last piece. Yeah, okay, I believe that. Ooh. That is terrible. Okay, I've... <clears throat> the last piece is completely in my mouth. Congrats. Just finishing swallowing it. Great. Pretty much gone. Alright. Uh, to savor the noise. Just took a sip of coffee to wash any stubborn remaining pieces down. And now I think we're good to go. Okay. I'm Hunter. You're Hugh. Uh, Project A Plus. Uh, films. What are we talking about this week? Uh, this week we'll be talking about not one. What? Not two. Uh? Not four. What? But three films. We'll probably talk about more than three films. And knowing us, it's probably like three trashy new releases or Netflix originals, right? Au contraire, Hugh Hamilton. It is, in fact, three classic films. Classic films? Yep. Like three classic American films? No, no. Three classic non-American films. What? One from the archipelago nation of Japan. Mm-hmm. The other two from the steamy shores of Iran. <laughs> they are as follows the final two films in the Cooker trilogy which were all directed by the incredibly famous art house director Abbas Kerostami it also uh, chosen by random dictate a film by Kon Itakawa one of the or a fairly lauded post-war Japanese auteur 
Pod, Fires on the Plane. Those are the three movies we'll be talking about today in the main segment. Specifically, the last two films in the Coca trilogy are Life and Nothing More, otherwise known as And Life Goes On, from 1992, and From Two Years Later, Through the Olive Trees. All of which follow upon the previous film, the trilogy. Where's the friend's house? Yes. Uh, where are we slotting this new pizza segment? Before or after? Uh, between the, the main features. As a palate cleanser between Fires on the Plane and the rest of the Coca trilogy. Yes. So Fires on the Plane, pizza, Coca trilogy, <laughs> box office, bonus features, random garbage segment. Sound, sound like a plan? I was also thinking of introducing a segment which could go before the main feature called Meals of the Day, in which we recount the meals we've had today. <laughs> You've already, you already do that, so... <laughs> I know, and, and mine's only usually one meal, whereas yeah. you have to recount three whole meals. Go plus to laborious de- a detail about my meals. We can, we can test it out. And I've realised what we should call this segment, Reels on Meals, because obviously we're recording to Reels of Tape. Mm. Uh, in reference to the famous... Uh, who's in it? Jackie Chan. Probably. Jackie Chan. Is he a vet? I thought it was the, yeah. the other other people. It's all three of them. Yang Bio, Simon Hung, and Jackie Chan. The famous Jackie Chan film, Meals on Wheel. He, is it Wheels on Meals? The actual film is called Wheels on Meals. Um, okay. Apparently because Golden Harvest was superstitious about starting the title with M. <laughs> because they previously had a flop with the film starting with M. With the M. Uh, I'm not sure if that's actually true, but that's apparently the reason why the title is garbled. Hmm. But we won't complain because it lends our title, Reels on Meals, an extra resonance with the uh, hero title of our podcast, which is Project A+. Meals on Reels. Should it be Reels on Meals, then? It's Reels on Meals. Okay, that's what I thought. Reels on Meals on Reels on Meals on Reels. So, Hunter, what have you been eating today? Wow, Hugh, I'm, I'm so happy you asked me that question. For breakfast today, I had some toast. What? What? With some cream cheese on it. Wow. And was this normal cream cheese, Hugh? No, it was vegan cream cheese. No, it was cream cheese, but normal cream cheese, not vegan cream cheese, which is obviously disgusting. It was normal cream cheese with chives and onions in it. Yeah, on a toast. Nice Tuscan pain bread. Okay? Yeah. Then for lunch, I had some leftover stir-fry, where I made a homemade sauce consisting of sriracha, honey, soy sauce, hot sauce, or two varieties of hot sauce, and pepper and salt. And the the stir-fry had carrots, peppers, Fried tofu, or baked tofu, tofu rather, and onion, green onions, and I think that's it. Nice. Then for dinner, I had a pasta, which had a sort of cacio e pepe sauce, mm-hmm. uh, and it's topped with um, Parmesan cheese, and I also had baked broccoli. That is the meals I've had today. Wow. What are the meals that you've had today? Well, being as it's only the morning here, I've only had... What time is it exactly? One meal. It's 11.28. Mm. And I've only Not consumed uh, one meal. 
which is a serving of toast. Mm -hmm. And the, on the toast was generic spread and mm. uh, New Zealand formula Marmite. Mm. Sounds like a delicious way to kick off your day, Hugh. We should we should rename all of our uh, all of our segments based on Golden uh, Harvest classic titles. Well, let's see if we can find a pizza one because that's one we haven't even named yet. <laughs> okay, let's see. Control F, pizza. No. Um. Pizza story. <laughs> Great, you did it. You did it, bro. <laughs> Uh, what? Main feature. The fires on the plane are driving me insane. My shoes now hardly cover my feet. The wall can make you sad. It's really not so bad, at least if you got monkey meat. Perhaps the best known film about Japanese soldiers wandering around the Philippines, eating the flesh of their fellows. Connie Chikawa's Fires on the Plane is essentially uh, an anti-war epic. There's a play on words here, alighted by our present audio form, in that the film is both an anti-war epic and a sort of deconstruction of a filmic war epic. It takes all the traits that one would expect from a typical cinescope wartime superproduction and turns them on their ear. For example, consider the film's protagonist, Tamura, hapless tuberculosis sufferer, whose only real talent lies in his ability not to be killed. The fact of his illness is no mere random ailment. Instead of the patriotism, either the triumphant or the defeatist kind, finds no purchase here. The war instead is rendered as a form of corroding affliction, one that turns ordinary men such as Tamura into killers, one that feeds on the patriotic, the devoted, and the cowardly alike. Vibrant shots of natures that have been rendered into zones of horror is a cliche in these sorts of films. Yet the moral vacuum of the numerous landscape shots that dot the film also point to Ichikawa's intentions. The narrative of the film is simple in its broad strokes. Rejected from a military hospital, which is subsequently bombed, Tamara wanders around Lete in a state of existential befuddlement. The stakes of the film become such that they are the stakes that each of us face every day. When faced with the moral rot and essential meaninglessness of existence, what actions are we to take? Now, Hugh, these philosophical mutterings belie the actual text of the film. Did you find Fires on the Plane to be an enlivening source of war cinema, or did a bleak theme innervate you to the point of non-interest? Um, um, you're tipping your hand a bit too much in your interactions. <laughs> <laughs> I want to know if you think it's trash. Yeah, it's trash. So I want to be surprised me. with the no, reveal, you unless, unless you're stringing me along or leading me down the garden path, and you will turn on yeah, the maybe film. Maybe I am. Maybe I am, Like bro. a soldier turns on... A monkey flesh man. Anyway, what are we talking about? <laughs> Fires on the plane. Like you asked me a question. I wasn't paying uh, complete was. attention to the way you phrased it, so Hugh. I don't know exactly how to answer Hugh. it. But you probably asked me if Hugh. I liked it, right? No. I asked you, was it innervating or was it enlivening? <laughs> those are my two options. Yes. Those are the only two responses you can have to cinema. Uh, I this was uh, this is good stuff. Yeah. Good stuff. My two-word uh, endorsement. <laughs> Dope filmmaking. Look, we've both we've both seen our fair share of war movies at this point. I'm assuming. I'm speaking on your behalf. We have. So I think the best way to talk about this film is to focus on the elements that distinguish it from those other war movies. Yes. Now, we've definitely seen war depicted as an existential nightmare before. 
We've seen depictions of the psychological and physical torment inflicted upon those involved, whether directly as soldiers or civilian casualties. This is the horrors of war approach, right? Yeah. The come and see approach, if you will. But I don't know if I've ever seen a war film that was as close to a horror film as this is. Mm. Although it's from 1959, this is basically a zombie film. It is. Um, and I thought that bef- even before the cannibalism was entered into it, because mm. like the the surviving Japanese soldiers, they're stumbling around the the forest like zombies anyway, basically half dead. Yeah, oftentimes picking the um, basic means of survival off their comrades who are dead in the streets or the field. And then, yes, as, as, as we already know, a number of soldiers have outright resorted to cannibalism. Mm. So there is obviously the explicit uh, zombie-like uh, nature of that act. Um, and uh, again, as covered by your introduction, uh, we have in our hero someone who is basically the walking dead himself. So he's dying of tuberculosis. Yeah. He's been given a request by his superior officer to... Uh, blow himself up with a grenade if the hospital won't take him back. And, you know, he wanders around with this sick, wide-eyed stare for the Mm. whole movie. So he is a zombie in his own way as well. And uh, I really like that sort of indelible image we get uh, towards the end um, when uh, one of of his comrades, who he's discovered has been uh, hunting and killing humans and pretending it's monkey meat. Yes. Um, has killed his former cohort and, he, and he's uh, started uh, going at his corpse and eating it yeah. and there's all this blood covering his beard and he actually mm-hmm. looked like one of those uh, you know iconic zombie images of a zombie with their jaw fallen off and just blood dripping down yeah. the bottom of their face and it's, all, it's also sort of a um, reference to a previous shot of the film where uh, Tomura gets blood all over him because he, he stabs a dog with a bayonet yes yes um, so it sort of reinforces the fact that these people have become like beasts. So I do like the fact that you could stick this movie uh, into like a zombie movie night or something like that, or an anthology, and it would kind of work. Mm. If you were like a pretentious twat. <laughs> <laughs> like you, for instance. Yeah, like I'd schedule it. It's good stuff. I enjoyed it. It is, for sure. I, 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 was, uh, I was surprised, given the sort of, Stereotype that's also kind of borne out, and if you watch a lot of Japanese post-war cinema, um, an attitude that pervades is the fact that, you know, the Japanese were sort of the victims of the war, which I mm. mean, in some cases they were, but it kind of overlooks the, the fact of the, the brutal nature of the Japanese occupation of uh, the Philippines and other, you know, places that they conquered. But I feel like this film indicts the culture of, uh, of Japanese militarism uh, as well so yeah i think in a way this this film basically strips off any layer of overt political comment yes by making the whole nature of warfare this sort of bloody amoral mm-hmm. landscape mm-hmm. so it's political in the sense that it's depicting war as a horror movie as a nightmare yeah. but there's no weighing up of the different sides of the conflict as uh, and saying one is is worse or more severe than the other in any no. particular way I do think it's not like a because you can make it a political film about that that can still endorse like aspects of uh, a regime that promotes war. You know what I mean? Uh, but I don't think this film does that at all. No. So I think of like the the sort of sergeant or, or squad commander character, not the not the one that's in the beginning, but the one who sort of 
uh, takes Tamura under his wing, and he's uh, sort of, you know, um, made out to be this, like, you know, asshole who overworks his troops and, like, eventually leads them to their deaths, so... <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, it's like, I mean, the whole thing is basically, like, post-humanity. It is very, it is it's very nihilist. But at the same time, I do think there is, uh, maybe not a, a string of hope, but there is something to be taken from the fact that, you know, Tamura refuses to to eat human flesh at the end, you know? Hmm. So it's not, it's not, it's not a film completely devoid of, like, any sort of, uh, like, morality, I guess. Although, what's it really matter? Because, like, he's the one who murdered an unarmed civilian woman, so... That is true. Drawing the line at eating dead <laughs> human flesh isn't, isn't really much. It's still a line, buddy. <laughs> I do think it's interesting this film also sort of is about, like, this character's, um, you know, like, the, the idea that he should commit suicide is introduced, like, at the beginning, and then he, like, never falls away from the, the desire to keep on living, you know? Hmm. Like, the, the ideology of, like, the honorable thing to do as a, as a Japanese soldier is to, like, kill yourself in defeat is, like, never given much quarter at all. But, um, yeah, I think this is a pretty remarkable film, all told. It's bleak, and it has moments of, like, serene beauty upon which that bleakness is... Uh, contrasted and, and plays out on. I also think that bleakness or darkness is complemented by uh, the sense of humor on display. Mm. And Conan Chikara was known for his comedy, so he, yeah. he he was coming from that background. Well, there's somebody sort of dabbled in all genres as his career went on. Mm. Yeah, there's a, there's that remarkable scene where there's a dead man with boots on, right? And the soldier immediately looks at his worn out shoes and replaces them with the dead man's superior footwear. And then another soldier comes up and takes these discarded shoes, and then it goes on for a couple more people, which is very funny, but also like, you know, the blackest of black humor. Mm. That even like sh- shoes that uh, have the, these like horrible holes in are are some relief to these these soldiers as miserable their, as their existence is. It was a moment that really stuck with me. And then our hero just decides to go barefoot. Yes. Yes. Uh, um, and I think this film is really. Or it makes really good use of like widescreen photography. I think. Mm, yeah, the the photography is great. I sort of got at this in the the introduction, but uh, if you read some of Ichikawa's uh, work or some of this, he actually wrote some critical writings. Where he's a really big fan of cinemascope and having the widest possible image mm. for all shots, and I think that uh, really works in this film, where sort of the um, impossible spaces of nature are sort of like some of the point it's trying to make. I think. And uh, he comes from a visual arts background. Yes, because he worked in puppet theater, right? If I remember correctly. And advertising, I think. Yes, perhaps. I got a book about him from the library once, and I read the introduction and then didn't read any of the actual essays in it, so <laughs> that's about the extent of my knowledge of him. So I guess he's, he's kind of similar to some of the other famous Japanese directors like Kurosawa and Ozu in that they, they do come from this visual arts background, and it, and it really shows in their film. Yeah, but I think, I think he's typically uh, seen as someone who's a little more of a journeyman than either of those two are. Well, they say that because his his filmography is so diverse. Yeah, and it's hard to, and, you know, apply to a tourist stamp to as many of his works as, say, like, Kurosawa's or, or Ozu's, who both, like, sort of developed this calcified style as their careers went on. I'm interested in seeing more. Yeah, me too. Uh, I, I want to watch... He made an adaptation of a Yukio Mishima film called... 
uh, the temple, the book is called the Temple of Epic Gold of Pavilion or something like that. As a kid, I've seen one of the films that he worked as associate director on, which is Milo and Otis. Oh, so. that's funny. Oh, uh, he also directed, I mean, he's also known for doing some documentaries as well, because he directed yes. uh, Tokyo Olympiad, it's one of his famous films. And he did a version of 47 Ronin as well, didn't he? Yeah, but so, so, everyone. <laughs> I guess Ozu and Kurosawa have it, but, uh, I, I, I read a book about Japanese cinema, and there's been, like, 47 adaptations of that or something like that. Exactly 47. Yeah, exactly. No, I have no idea. Uh. There's been a there's been a million adaptations of that specific story, <laughs> and obviously the best one is the American one with the very Japanese um, Keanu Reeves as uh, the main character. <laughs> I totally want to watch that movie. So in summary, mm-hmm. I think this absolutely stakes its claim among war films. Mm, it's, I, agree. I think it's one of the most singular I've seen. And when you know when it started, I was like. Oh, yeah, is this just going to be like a kind of boring survival war story? Oh no, all contrary. <laughs> no, definitely not. Good film. Yeah, I would say I would go so far as to say a great film. I think this works better because it, it lacks any overt moralism aside from the what you can deduce from the way it's depicting war. No, it's not trying to be like, and also you shouldn't betray the cause. But I think it would be interesting to write about this film in relation to Buddhism a little bit. Hmm. Um, and obviously Ishikawa well I mean, maybe not obviously but Ishikawa made a sort of Buddhist allegory war film in, with the Burmese harp uh, a couple of years later it's apparently a much gentler film than this one what I think is interesting about this film is that it both makes like the, the natural landscape isn't it's not assigned any like one value I don't think um, it is both like sort of a, a resource but also the, the fact that like you know they're, they're it, it provides like a prison almost for the, the characters at the end of the film and, like, there's nothing... Like, the only, like, food that they can find is stuff that has been cultivated by humans, you know? Hmm. Um, but... Hey, I'll leave that for my, uh, dissertation. <laughs> Buddhism in Japanese film. <laughs> Look for it on store shelves, never. Uh, we should also mention the fact that... Wasn't this film written by Ichikawa's wife? Yes, as a number of his, uh, sort of golden age films were not to water who yeah who, who worked on a lot of his films and i think in the 60s she suddenly decided to stop being a, a screenwriter for whatever reason and she was also a film columnist hmm i'd be interested to read some of her uh, film writings she's like an interesting figure hmm okay that's fire than the plane now it's time for police story police story pass a piece of pizza baby I want some pizza, lay me out a slice Fetch a felon feature for me It's a police story, dig them fights Hey, so Hugh, what are you going to talk about pizza today? Because I haven't had a pizza in a good long while uh, so I'm going to talk about the fact that a, a new New York style pizza slice joint opened up uh, about 20 minutes walk from my house. The name of this joint is Leo's. Has a few booths at the front, a trendy bar at the back. Hugh, I gotta say this does not sound like New York style pizza to me. But they offer full 18 inch pies by the slice. And that is rare in Melbourne. There's only one or two other joints that I'm aware of, which I'm yet to Mm. try. But I will report back once I try them on a future episode. That's great. 
Um, so uh, after watching the film Satan Tango all day one Saturday, my brother and I wandered down the street because it's not far from the cinema. Oh, you went. You saw it in a movie theater. We did. Yes. Was it in pieces and, or? Hmm. Was it in pieces? Pizzas. Pieces. I'll I'll, I'll talk about Satan Tango in bonus features. So my brother and I went to this pizza joint, Leo's. And uh, we ordered the equivalent, the closest thing to the American plain slice or plain mm-hmm. cheese slice. Mm-hmm. Although because it's Melbourne, they're using Australian terminology, so they just call it a margarita. I don't understand. Because a margarita pizza in America is something that typically has like some tomatoes on it or something. It's not, it's not quite just a basic cheese slice. Well, no, well, like, there's the, the proper Italian margarita, which has, like, buffalo mozzarella, basil, and a tomato sauce. That's, like, the proper, like, uh, god pizza in Italy. God pizza. <laughs> and that concept uh, has sort of devolved into the shitty margaritas that you can get anywhere in Australia, which is just a tomato sauce covered in mozzarella. And technically, the plain cheese slice in America is a tomato sauce with some sort of mozzarella on top. So it is fundamentally a type of margarita, if you if you get on that way. But it's not really a traditional yeah. one. Yeah. And it's quite a different flavor. I, mean, I would never describe it as a margarita pizza or whatever. But anyway, that's the terminology used here. And growing up, um, margarita is probably one of the worst pizzas that you can get in Australia. Um, because it was just like this horrible, chunky mound of disgusting mozzarella. Mm-hmm. So anyway, I bite, I bite into this, uh, $5 a pop mm-hmm. slice, Whoa. which is, which is about $3.50 or something in the US. I think I looked up mm-hmm. and the flavor profile is shitty margarita, Australian style pizza That's instead of the American style. And the problem is they use like a couple of different cheeses, including Buffalo mozzarella. So it's too chunky. There's too much cheesiness going on. Mm. And the tomato sauce taste wasn't right. Um, all the press went on about the fact that they used this special sourdough formulation in the dough so that you could hold it one-handed and fold it like the classic New York slice. As, as, you, but as you better well believe I eat all my pizza that way. I don't know if it's a straight-up lie or the person who cooked it on this particular occasion overcooked it because it was quite black on the bottom. It just snapped when you tried to fold it, so it didn't really work that way. A lot of Neapolitan pizzas are black on the bottom, so maybe that was what we were going for. That's right. But this, I think, I think they took it too far because another mm. signifier of that was the fact that the cheese was oozing orange oil, mm. and that happens if you cook it too, too much. It's not supposed to actually get to that point. Um, so we've talked on a previous episode, even though it was not in an official segment at the time, about my own efforts to recreate the New York yes. Slice at home. And your, your own efforts to do it pretty well, if memory serves. It was. Like, the, the flavor profile was there. The dough I couldn't quite replicate properly because I just, I just bought a shitty, you know, pre-made dough. Yeah. And I don't have a pizza oven or a pizza stone or anything. So that's the limitation of it. But the flavor profile is kind of on the money. And it does, like, hit the spot of what I miss mm. from New York, whereas this did not. Even though it was okay. Like, it was, it was obviously better than a normal Australian pizza, but... I will stick to the other joint on the same shopping strip that offers three shitty slices for the same price. <laughs> Albeit small and shitty, but I, like, I kind of like the shittiness of it. Whereas this is a bit too it's, trendy. It's charming shitty. Charming shitty, yeah. So that is my story. Mm. Do you have anything to add about pizza? Nope. Project time, it's project time. 
Project time, it's project time. Project time, it's project time. Project time, it's project time. So now let's talk about uh, Abbas Kiristami's uh, Coca Trilogy. On a previous episode, the very previous episode, in fact, we talked about uh, the film Where is the Friend's Home? Yes. And although the films we were talking about today were not the very next films he made... No. Uh, one of his most famous films, Close Up, in fact, predates the next installment of this trilogy. Yes, it might be said to anticipate it to some degree. Um, I forgot... I forgot what I was saying, but anyway. I don't know, dude. Was that a complete thought? <laughs> yeah, sure. Life and Nothing More is a fictionalization of a trip that Abbas Kiristami made himself in the wake mm. of a disastrous earthquake. Yes. That ravaged the Coca community that he depicted so lovingly in Where is the Friend's Home? And uh, he travelled to the community in the wake of this earthquake during the relief efforts to see if the cast, and in particular the star of uh, Where is the Friend's Home, uh, to see if they were all right. Yes. And uh, that is what is fictionalised in Life and Nothing More. Although uh, I don't believe there's any moment where they say that the person driving the car is... Abbas Kiristami. No, but it's clearly supposed to be sort of surrogate for him. Yeah. Essentially, the way it's presented is as a a road trip to this Coca community um, by this director with his son in the backseat as they try and make their way through the relief efforts and uh, Mm -hmm. devastation Mm -hmm. to discover if uh, this little boy is still alive. Uh Uh-huh. So that's the film. It's a fairly straightforward story. It's just their journey and um, the people they encounter along the way. So there's not much to say about the plot. No. The film, two years later, Through the Olive Tree, the- adds an extra meta layer by depicting the filming of Life and Nothing More and yes. fictionalizing the filming of that in this film and telling the story of one of the cast members and his... His attempts to uh, romance yes. a fellow actor in the movie against the wishes of her surviving family. Mm-hmm. So we get scenes from Life and Nothing More uh, recreated in this film with another actor playing Abbas Kiristami directing the actor playing Ag- Abbas Kiristami in the previous film. Yes. Uh, so that's those, that's those two films. So they just it kind of builds these layers on top of the original Where is the Friend's Home? in a really interesting way. So let's start with life and nothing more. Uh, what did you make of this, sir? Well, Hugh, I can say that, without a fact, without a doubt, this is my favorite film in the trilogy. Mm. In fact, I think this film is brilliantly written and conceived, and I basically thought I loved it. So that's what I have to say about uh, that film. 
That film being Life and Nothing More. Life and Nothing More. What did you make of Life and Nothing More, Hugh? Uh, it might be the best film of the trilogy. I'm, I think mm. I might agree with you there. I actually think the first two are maybe the strongest. Well, I, I completely agree with you. So if you look at this beside Where is the Friend's Home, and I would also argue The Taste of Cherry. Yes. Um, you really get a sense of the very particular way Kiristami's films portray journeys. Yeah. Um, and like the cliche goes, they're almost never about the actual destination, which really yes. is a pretext. And if, uh, this is especially true here where like, he never reaches his intended destination. Yeah, exactly. So most most films that are about journeys usually adopt some variation of that idea, you know, that it's really about the journey and the friends you made along the way or whatever. But yeah, Kiristami takes it a step further by depriving us of the destination entirely. So that happens to an extent in Where is the Friend's Home because he never finds the friend's home. Yes. Although, like, that story kind of ends naturally. Yeah, it has a, it has a more definitive conclusion than, yeah, than bo- both of the other films of the trilogy. So, like, this ends with him driving in the distance, potentially to finding this kid, but we don't actually know. It just yeah. ends there. It's like, that's enough. Right, I thought I thought that sequence was incredibly moving. It's a great final, final shot of the car struggling to get across this zigzag path. Again, mirroring that the same path in uh, Where is the Friend's Home? Which, which will prop up again in... Uh... Uh, through the olive trees. Yes, it will. In different contexts. So, yeah, these narratives, instead of worrying about where the, the destination actually ends up, they prioritize observation. Yes. So observation of these shifting landscapes and particularly of the lives of the people encountered yes. along the way. And yes. that's kind of emphasized by the fact that the protagonists in these films are, in essence, observers. Mm. And especially in life... Uh, and nothing more yes where we have this stand-in for kiristami himself just like staring at the landscapes yeah and in the beginning of the film where there's basically i mean there's very limited dialogue it's just him and and his son either real or fictionalized just traveling through these disaster zones and watching like talking to the people there and interacting with them and i thought i thought those sequences were amazingly done i I do too to say the characterization is like astute, and uh, I think in, in both cases, whereas whereas a friend's home that we've already talked about, and here, and propelled by really excellent understated performances. I really like the guy who played uh, Kiristami here. Me too. But I don't think either film really qualifies as a character study. No, definitely not. Um, whereas a friend's home, I guess, is closer to it because it's more about the kids, the nature of the kids' morality. Whereas here, the, the Kiristami character functions more as an observer than an actual yeah, character. for sure. And an empathetic observer rather than an impartial one, but still an observer nonetheless. And on a, on a technical level, I can't think of any director who handles extended car journeys as well as no, Kiristami. I can't either. I think, in fact, most directors are defeated by the requirement to keep such repetitive action visually engaging and i find most road trip movies quite wearying as mm. a result there's always a point where i'm like yeah i've had enough of this journey yeah um and if like if i go into a film cold like i don't know what it's about and then i realize it's settling into a road trip format my heart mm. usually sinks because i am usually wow. disappointed by the result it's not my favorite genre by any stretch mm. which is why it's all the more incredible the, the way that Kiristami handles it here 
Yeah. Um, so here and in Taste of Cherry, which is quite similar to this film. Which I have never not seen. Not so much thematically, but the way uh, the car journey is depicted. Mm. Um, he really makes that that car journey the ultimate cinematic device. Yeah, for sure. It is sort of the thing that allows the rest of the film to progress, you know. It frames the images. But it's like it's the ultimate dolly shot as well. Yes. And you get this meditative momentum switching between POV shots of, like, looking out the window. Like, both of the, the landscape scrolling by as if you're looking out a side window, but also the shots mm. of, like, the oncoming road often without even the interior of the car in frame. Like, it's just the camera mounted on the dashboard somewhere. Not on the dashboard, yeah. like, on the front of the car. Yeah, sometimes sometimes there'll be dialogue that is progressing. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes you not. hear the dialogue of the character. I found yeah. that really, really effective. Yeah, me too. Uh, and then it cuts between those and shots of the occupants, just looking at the landscape, looking at the road, observing. Yes. The, as you said, those landscape sequences are frequently astonishing especially like the the devastated ruins and all the, yeah. the figures there's one shot in this film specifically that i i have come back to over and over again where it is a extreme long shot of the car attempting to cross this overpass type thing or it's against just a, a mountainous road and there's these huge cracks in the in the like facade of the road that you see and there's a it's just an astonishing sequence because essentially it plays out um the dialogue plays out in this long sequence, and like you can't even the the it's afraid of something you don't you don't even know who's really participating in it, you know. Yeah, it's it's just a really amazing shot. Yeah, the the, the landscape just is incredible. Yeah, it is. And this this kind of confounded my ignorant idea of Iranian cinema mm. in a lot of ways because. Um, I, I have to go back to before I even saw, like, Taste of Cherry and Close mm. Up, like, before I knew I'd actually seen an Iranian film, I think. Um, and I only knew about it from its reputation and, like, little clips on movie review shows and stuff. Uh-huh. And it always looked kind of a bit drab and, like, maybe cinema verite type mm. stuff, yeah. which isn't always that interesting no. to me if, it, if that's all it's going for. Me too. Um, so I wasn't expecting it to be, like, as visually rich as it is in, in these films. Yeah, this is an incredibly beautiful film. It is, absolutely. Uh, and perhaps Through the Olive Trees is also a very beautiful film. Uh, I wouldn't know because uh, uh, the YouTube copy that we had was pretty ugly. Yeah, so, that, wasn't very, that, was pretty, that looked pretty drab yes. <laughs> by YouTube. I, I think the way the metatextual stuff works in this film is 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 interesting because on one level you have this very elemental very purely cinematic technique of this car journey in service of quite a straightforward story yeah and on the other level you have this this metatextual element and the way this film mirrors and responds to where is the friend's home it never disrupts the basic story it doesn't feel like it's cynical or ironic or off-puttingly intellectual no no it's not metafictional in a way that feels exclusionary, you know. Yes, yes, exactly. Like it's, not, it's not a film that's like, um, uh, like lauding itself by the fact that it's like referencing all these great works. Yeah, I would say I, I feel like I would find this film as moving and as as beautiful as I did, um, even if I had not seen the previous film. I think that uh, through the olive trees is a little more requiring you to have seen. Life and nothing more, but yes, I agree. Uh, and that, I actually think is one of the reasons I thought it was a slightly lesser film than the other two films. 
But let's just let's let's talk about just some of the stuff in Life Another One just to summarize. I think I I find this film sort of approach towards it is sort of not lionization, but like how it makes the very act of observing and telling people stories and, and stuff. It, it really I thought it was really moving on a basic level. Or I think this is like emblematic or best summarized in the in the closing shot of the film, which is this car struggling to get up this mountain. But it, it, it's like you know this this struggle to attain this like goal but it's like it, the film makes it seem like completely worth it to i don't know it, it really felt really it was really movie to me <laughs> but i can't quite like articulate you know what i mean there's something about the, just like the resiliency of the human ability to capture images and i don't know just just function empathetically that i thought was very moving <laughs> i think it is a great humanist film yes have you seen closer i have i actually i, I mean I, I don't remember liking it that much to be honest Close-up's really good. I think it's better than uh, Through the Olive Trees. Mm. A lot better. I need to rewatch it, I think. But I don't know if it's as good as this one, as Life and Nothing More. I think this this resonated with me more. Yeah, I think this is probably my favorite Kar- Karasami film that I've seen so far. But I'd be interested to, to know what you think of The Taste of Cherry. Mm, I want to watch that one, too. Maybe we'll talk about it next week. Which does have a similar format, but but very different. Um, but yeah, that I, I really like that, but I know some people such as the late Roger Ebert, absolutely hate it. <laughs> because there's, a, there's some contentious elements in it. Uh, anyway, so, uh, yeah, let's move on to Through the Olive Trees. We can, talk, we, talk, we can talk about some of the reasons why we think it might be a little bit of a... why it is not quite as strong as other two films of the trilogy, I think. So you mentioned you, you found it a little bit more of a struggle to, to get through this. Yes. I found it still, like, very purely enjoyable. Mm. I thought it was purely enjoyable in sequences, but I didn't find the sort of uh, basic, like, through line to be that compelling, to be honest. Yeah, I get that. But there is there is something about Kurosami's pacing, which I lock into really easily, and especially since his films are only 90 minutes long, usually. Mm, yeah. It's it's difficult for me to get uh, mm. bored with them or anything. It's 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 the, even, even when it's less engaging, as I think it is here then, the previous film... I still find it really quite enjoyable yeah. to go along with. See, this one I think I think feels like more of an intellectual exercise than either the other two films do. That is true, yeah. And that's why I think it kind of suffers in comparison just a bit. So, what did you think of the main the main love story and these or that guy in particular? Because we don't get much of uh, his object of affection because she's quite withdrawn from him. Uh, I, don't know. I thought it was kind of like not not creepy necessarily, but I don't know. Incelish. <laughs> yes. <laughs> So like, because you seem very like, oh, I deserve to have you, you know. Yeah. And I found that to be kind of off-putting. Man, I don't know. What did you What did you think of the ending of the film, where you know, sort of, he he spends this entire film trying to prompt a response from the this woman who he's infatuated with. He never gets one except for the end, which is like unrevealed to the audience. Um, and I I kind of I liked the, I don't know. I think I would have liked it more if they they just never resolved in that way. You know? Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I think it's kind of like one of those endings where I've read like critics praise the ambiguity of it. Like, yeah. what, what was the response? But I don't think ambiguity is necessarily a good thing in all cases. I think. No, I agree. It, it might be a substitute for uh, I don't know how to end this story, <laughs> and I don't know if it would be satisfying if I told the audience either way what the answer of this this woman would be to this guy's yeah, I, I would have been, request. 
I don't know, because I kind of, I kind of enjoyed the how she just ignores him. You know, I thought that to be kind of like powerful in its way. You know, but I, adding that like level of ambiguity kind of makes me feel a little like, well, it could resolve one way or the other. You know, I don't know if it's. Uh... Yeah, I don't. I don't think it. I don't think that was that uh, compelling as an ending, and it seemed to repeat the same like long shot technique that uh, Life and Nothing More did more effectively. I think. Yeah, and I kind of just like the. I mean, I don't know, like just the basic like, because if you do read it as ambiguous, if you, if you want to read the film as like a romantic film, then you accept that she is like acceded to his demands, right? Mm. For that to be a little, I don't know. I, I didn't find his entreaties to be particularly compelling. <laughs> he seemed like <laughs> he's like a loser. I liked actually. So I thought I thought his performance was actually very good. Yeah, he's he's a compelling um, sort of I don't know. Yeah, incel type. You're right. <laughs> <laughs> and there's one section where he's talking to to the Kiristami stand-in. Yeah, they're sitting in the back of a truck and they're having a discussion, and uh, he's talking about the fact that or Kiristami's like alerting him to the fact that he's rejecting someone else because she's illiterate when the object of his affection has rejected him because he's illiterate and trying to point out the, the hypocritical nature of that. And I quite enjoyed his response, not saying I necessarily agree with it, but he was talking about the fact that, like, it should be a balance. Like, illiterate people should be marrying literate people. Yeah. <laughs> not just literate people marrying literate people. Like, literacy is obviously has a different uh, meaning, uh, in, meaning in that society. Yeah. Than, than we're used to here, where literacy levels are much higher. Yeah, it's obviously more of a class uh, marker than it is. And... and he even phrases it, even just the idea of rich people getting together with poor people so that not everyone just stays at the same strata. Yeah, well, I'm like, yeah, I kind of agree with this, but at the same time, this kind of reminds me of, like, you know, the incel, like, yes. sex redistribution thing. But I thought that was a that was a compelling scene. I like. Yeah, that. I thought it was a good articulation of this particular character's, like, viewpoint. And I, I can't tell if sort of Karastami, the, the, the stated for Karastami is like sort of um, encouraging this young man's affections, you know, is it, supposed to be like a degree of like self-criticism on the part of Karastami, you know what I mean? He was sort of acting paternalistically, but he wasn't yeah. clear what he necessarily thought was the right thing to do. I mean, but I, I think you can read this film, but I, I think that the ambiguous reading sort of makes this... Imp- well, not only can you read this film, but I had to, because I can't speak Persian. Goodbye. I'm going to go goodbye now. <laughs> but I think, I think... I think I would prefer their version of this one that is a little, like, critical towards Karastami, you know what I mean? Mm. Or has a degree of, like, self-criticism, in which, the, which you can read this film as. And I feel like if you, if you do read... If you think that Karasami is rendering this guy as kind of like, you know, a, a paternalistic um, prig, you know, that you can read it as like, you know, he's, he's, he's ignoring this, this young woman's like desires entirely, you know. Mm. Uh, but again, that sort of like talks to the flaws in the ending is that it, it weaves it too open-ended, you know what I mean? And do you think, I do think it's sort of, it, it is sort of setting the young woman up as sort of, like, the, the person who has, like... Because she's framed in the same way that um, the child in Where's the Friend's House and the Kurosami standing in um, Life and Nothing More is, where she's, like, calling up the mountain. Um, so this was based on a real incident on the set of Life and Nothing More, mm. I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, what actually happened with, with 
that story? What was the truth of it, I wonder? I don't know. If it wasn't on Wikipedia, I don't know. <laughs> no, it wasn't on Wikipedia, so I'm looking at it now. <laughs> so, may as well not exist. Yeah. Maybe I'll pick up that Criterion uh, uh, Blu-ray set they're putting out next month, and I can give you an answer. So, uh, do you have any uh, final uh, concluding thoughts for um, either of these two films? No. Good films. Uh, yeah. I mean, one great film, one, one interesting pretty good film. film. I think I'd like to watch uh, Through the Olive Trees in a... In a, a uh, Olive you know, Grove? No, in a, in a transfer that is dissolved like garbage. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. Uh, maybe I'd appreciate it a bit more. But I did find I did find the conceit of like them reenacting parts of um, the production of uh, Life and Nothing More to be a little um, wearing at times, I guess. Okay, right, so um, so we move on to our next segment, which is the box office. Box office hooray! Box office hooray! Box office hooray! Box office. Are you ready? Yep. Three, okay, three two, two, one. one. Fast, Fast and, and Furious, Furious presents Hobbs, Hobbs and, and Shaw. Shaw. I'd be interested. I'd be interested to go down. Well, I actually know what movie it is. On who? Uh, on you, right now. Okay. <laughs> I'd be interested in going down the list until we get to a movie that's different between our two. I, I think I already know which one it would be because I don't think. I mean, the film in question hasn't opened in America or in Australia yet. But it would be interesting, but we're not going to do it. No, let's do it right now. Okay, ready? <laughs> The Number Lion two, King. The Lion King. Number three, well, this is we're gonna diverge. Once, it, once upon a time in Hollywood. So there you go. Hmm. I'm gonna get some. Uh, I'm gonna get a, a snack real quick. I've been looking for a place to wallow where I can be my And I've been searching for the final people that I have left behind. They say I got brains, but they ain't doing me no good. I wish they would Each time things start to happen again I think I got something good Going for myself But what goes wrong? Sometimes I feel very sad Sometimes I feel very sad Sometimes I feel very sad Guess I just wasn't made for these times. What? Right. 
A diamond necklace played upon Hand in hand da da ba da 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 Where they found the pendulum drops Bicko, bicko Up through the upper glass you see Da ba da ba da 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 bee I love the little moon All in nature's ruins All Canvas the town and brush the backdrop. Are you sleeping, Farmer John? Well, East Coast girls are very really dig the clothes they wear. And the man, da 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 they pick me up when I'm down there. Sorry about that, boyo. You missed my Beach Boys medley. Which, which song did you do? It's a medley. I did fucking songs. Well, which songs? Uh, I think I sang I Just Wasn't Made For These Times. Oh, that's a good song. Um, then, uh, I sang, uh, California Girls. Well, East Coast! <clears throat> well, East Coast Girls really scream and shout. <laughs> that song would be right? great with, like, a really creepy old man voice. <laughs> well, East Coast Girls, we kept me. Uh, a bad night, but... Yeah, I'm back in the California girls. This is great, dude. Now the thing about it, though, yeah, is lucky you are, boy. what do you think? It, what do you think the actual sentiment is getting at? Is he saying, even though there are other great girls in this fine country of ours? I would prefer if they were all just the one type of girl, which is my favorite, which is California girl. So that's one option. Mm. Yeah. Or is he saying, I wish there's a great variety of girls across the country. I wish they were all in California. Mm. Like that variety was local to me and mm. I could get at them without going very far. I feel like option A is what uh, I'm getting from this. Like I've been around, all around the world. I've seen all kinds of girls, but they can't really measure up to California girls. But then why would you say, I wish they could all be like, I wish they all could be California girls. Dude, I don't like, know. It's like, I like this great diversity out there, but I wish it was all just the one thing. Why not continue to live in the world where you have those options? You're in California. You, you've got California girls. I am not Brian Wilson, so I can't answer Why that do you want to, like, uh, you know, enforce this mono-racial... I don't know if it's a racial thing. Agenda. <laughs> California isn't a race. Monocultural agenda. There you go. All right, so... Um, What's our next segment? Bonus features, bonus, bonus features, bonus features, bonus, bonus features. <coughs> Who wants to go first? You want to go first. All right. Uh, so I watched the film The Foreigner based on the book The Chinaman. <laughs> Yikes. And it stars Jackie Chan. I put a star next to stars, which I will uh, address in a moment. And they do actually call him the Chinaman throughout the film. Yikes. 
the start of the story, there's an explosion in London and it claims the life of uh, Jackie Chan's character's daughter. And he tries to get to the bottom of what happened. Obviously, he's, he's a grieving parent. He wants revenge. Uh, uh, an IRA faction has claimed responsibility for it. He's pressuring uh, Northern Irish politicians to to tell him some names so he can track them down and uh, enact revenge, etc., etc. Blah blah. So it sounds like it's a setup for like a Taken style film, right? Or a Death Wish style film, but with Jackie Chan, which I was totally down for. It's not that at all. Basically, you could take the Jackie Chan element and story out of this film, and it wouldn't make any difference to anything. Most of the film is IRA intrigue uh-huh. with Pierce Brosnan. Lame. Um, it's enjoyable seeing Jackie Chan in it. I think he's like good for the role, and I like seeing him playing like an old, older character as opposed mm. to someone who pretends that they're a younger character mm. and is still an action star. I think it's good to have him as like this older father who's just owning a Chinese restaurant but has a history. I think that's that's a good fit for him at this stage of his career. But this is not, unfortunately, the film that it should have been. It's a shame. I was actually kind of looking forward to that because it looked like pretty trashy. I was too, and it was directed by Martin Campbell, who has made some yeah. good films. Yes, like uh, Casino Royale. And uh, best of all, the TV version of Edge of Darkness. Although he did also direct the probably terrible movie version. Mm. And finally, I watched a film called Satan Tango ah. from Balatar. 1994, not that easy a film to track down, but it was being shown as part of the Melbourne International Film Festival. So I went to the cinema 15 minutes from my house on foot and uh, watched this seven-hour film. So it had two intermissions, so it was basically split into thirds. Um, I could have done without the intermissions because they kind of ruined that... Uh, that you, know, you know, when you're sitting through a long film in the cinema or at home maybe... You kind of want to fool yourself about how far along you are in the narrative. You're like, I'm going to try yeah. and like forget about time. Maybe I'm really far along. Maybe it's almost over. Mm-hmm. But when when it's split up and you know that the intermission's coming, you, you know you're not even a third of the way through while you're yeah. in that first segment and stuff. So I prefer it with no intermissions and you're just having those mind games with yourself the whole way through. That's that's my preference. Which I think the way I saw Happy Hour, I think that was five hours straight, um, and I prefer it that way. And I managed not to go to the toilet as well, or not to need to go to the toilet. Yikes. Uh, the film. You haven't seen it, right? No. Um, I watched a, a... What's his name? Lav Diaz film, mm-hmm. the Filipino director. Yeah, I remember you being sort of mixed on that a bit. Yeah, I watched Season of the Devil, which was uh, his, his four-hour-long black-and-white film. And he seems very much influenced by Belatar. And he's one of the exponents of the current slow cinema movement. And I kind of resent the slow cinema movement as a movement. I like films that are slow, but I don't like, I don't want that to be a movement. I want it to be slow if it needs to be slow, yeah. or if that's what they want to achieve. It's not like every film you make has to be that. Yeah, I agree. Whereas everything, every film Lav Diaz has made is like four or five hours at least. And I, I don't have much desire to, to see any of the other ones based on Season of the Devil, although it was interesting in some respects. Um, but I like the fact that Satan Tango is uh, slow in a way that, that skirts the perverse, which which I appreciate. I think if you're going to present some scenes as agonizingly slow as they are here, 
it helps if there's a, a sort of sense of perversity <laughs> yeah or a sense of humor even behind it so there's like this really long sequence of this this like so it's structured around a tango it's based on a novel which does the same thing so it's in 12 parts right the film is structured that way and it mirrors the tango like six steps forward six steps back or whatever it is so it doubles back on the same events from different perspectives and stuff like that and one of the versions of, of the sequence of events is from the perspective of this doctor in this community who basically never leaves his house and all he does is, like, watch his neighbours and note down what they're doing in these books and drink all day. So it's just, like, this really agonisingly long sequence of him looking at them through binoculars, writing stuff down, continually pouring himself uh, fruit brandy, collapsing on the floor, waking up, you know... And then eventually going out to try and get some more fruit brandy. Um, Sounds like your existence right now. Uh, yes, he's my stand-in in this film. I don't know if all of this film works well. <laughs> That's it. Well, Hugh, I only watched one other film before the films uh, we talked about uh, on uh, the podcast today. So, Wow. If you want to know what it was, it's a film that I already talked about watching on the show. I did talk about watching it last week. Which is a little film called Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which I watched again. I noticed you upgraded it from four and a half stars to five stars on rewatching it. You're like, this is even better than I thought. I love this film. But you can't talk about it. That's not a bonus feature. That's for a future episode. I was gonna say I love it, and then uh, that's it. We can leave. We can leave my the specifics of my feelings later. Maybe I'll go see it again for a third time before then. Ugh. Here's my preemptive review. Ugh. Ah! Ah! Uh, now it's time for hang on let's get a Jackie Chan reference for our carte blanche section I hope you have something to talk about oh, I guess I can I talked about, about pizza so you, you should oh, introduce the topic our pizza segment is both of us though I know but I, I dominated this week hey, you. Well, that means you have to do it next week yeah, I'll do it next week. So let's have a look at uh, some Jackie Chan film titles that we can use for this segment quickly. Something as good as Polizza Story. Um, My Lucky Stars. Twinkle, Twinkle, Lucky Stars. The Inspector Wears Skirts. Dragons Forever. We could just call it Drag On Forever. <laughs> Perfect. Drag On Forever. Now it's time for Drag On Forever, the segment in which one of us gets to choose a topic which we will exclusively talk about for the next five minutes. And this week, it is your turn, starting from... Now. All right, Hugh. I want to talk to you about a little television show called... Mobile Suit Gundam. Okay. Now, Hugh, you might ask me, what is a Gundam? What is a mobile suit? What is suit? a Gundam? Suit. Hugh. Hugh. I know that you're a limp-brained beta cock, so you may not know the intricacies of anime. That's right. To answer your question, Gundam is a Japanese television series that is 
in many ways responsible for the rise of mecha anime, one of the most important and interesting genres in Japanese anime. It is okay. a TV that aired in the 1970s. It follows the uh, sort of story of this um, crew of civilians turned soldiers in uh, the in the future as they battle against the neo-fascist empire known as the Principality of Zeon. The cast is all children. They've been forced into a conflict they barely know. They barely understand. A film, uh, you know, this film, uh, this TV series sort of mixes uh, interesting character development, uh, bizarre sci-fi conceits, and some great, great mega action, along with sort of a complicated relationships towards war and and peace and the plight of soldiers who are forced to do things uh, in service of a cause they barely understand. I think it's I think it's a great television series. To the child now, soldiers. Basically. Now, I will admit it is really long. It's forty three episodes for this series. That's not that long. Yeah. But it there are there are a couple especially towards the beginning of the show, there are quite a number of uh episodes that are just filler. <laughs> and I will admit now that sort of is a barrier to watching it, and I think getting through the first ten or so episodes is kind of a slog at times. Mm. But so, like, is God this damn, is it worth it? Individual seasons? No. It's just forty-three episodes. Yeah, that's it. How long are each episode? Uh, like twenty minutes. Okay. But it is a great anime series that inaugurated one of my favorite anime franchises in the world. And I would recommend that everyone listening to the show who has even a passing interest in anime, check out the original. Even if you're just watching compilations of fight scenes. Because, goddamn you, it has some goddamn great fight scenes. Are there movie spin-offs and tie-ins There as are well? movie tie-ins. There are numerous TV series. There are alternate universes. There's all sorts of stuff you... But you're recommending goes on forever. Go I'm, back to I'm, the I'm recommending that people go to the original Gundam show. The first 43. First 43. Or as it's known in the Gundam community, 79. I thought it was 30 to 50. What? Sorry. No, I don't get that. Uh, it's a Feral Hogs reference. It's going to age podcast. Like, uh, like vinegar. Mm-hmm. Uh, and how many more minutes do I have left to you? You have uh, two and a half minutes. Not only is the show great, Actually, you, one and a half minutes. Sorry, but it features the the best sort of relationship between sort of beta male type in the form of the series main protagonist Amuro, right, mm-hmm. and a total Chad in the form of its sort of kind of antagonist Char. Sort of the greatest uh, relationships between a, a Chad and a, and a beta that's ever been developed on screen so it sounds quite uh, so it sounds like um, Evangelion is like a riff on that yeah it is it's sort of a, it's, it's of a deconstruction of Gundam and other mm. like mecha shows for sure because that's that's children being forced to, to yeah. pilot but unlike yeah the, the thing about Evangelion is it plays up more of the horror that comes along with that 
Mm. Um, and there are moments of like the horrors of war and that sort of stuff in Gundam for sure. And it does have an interesting, I think, maybe Kimbib is a bit strong, but it, it, it at least attempts to humanize the enemy um, while sort of, you know, decrying the, the, uh, the I mean, the ideology is maybe a bit strong because this is a show that doesn't really delve into its the specific politics of either of its side, especially deeply. Um, but it, it makes a special point to show that, you know, a lot of... And your time is up. <laughs>